Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Cutting Inputs, Growing Liquid Corn and Sequestering Carbon with Russell Hedrick is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Though Russell Hedrick has been farming for less than a decade, he's already made a name for himself as a proponent of regenerative ag practices, including planting green, grazing livestock, and adding diversity to his cropping rotations. The Hickory, North Carolina no-tiller is a popular speaker at ag conferences and farm meetings, and in January of 2020 was invited to speak at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, about his experience working with Indigo Ag on its Terraton initiative, a program focused on removing a trillion tons of carbon from the atmosphere. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I caught up with Russell as he finished up a series of talks at farm groups across Wisconsin. In our conversation, Russell talks about how his experience as a young first-generation farmer faced with soil erosion led him on the path to using no-till, cover crops, incorporating livestock, and more. He also shares his thoughts on why farmers should be direct marketing their products, growing and selling liquid corn versus hard corn, how farmers can boost their incomes in the carbon credits marketplace, and more. Here's Russell talking about how he got started as a farmer. We started farming in uh, 2012 and I really had an issue with winter erosion on our farm ground. Just getting, uh, that's when we typically get most of our rainfall. And I just happened to wander into a soil and water office. Uh, wanted to talk to him about that and met this crazy guy named Lee Holcomb that worked for NRCS. Uh, he's a district conservationist at the time. And Lee showed us a video called Undercover Farmers. It featured farmers in my area. They were farming no-till, they were using cover crops. Lee really just told us about all the benefits associated with regenerative farm practices. And we really didn't even understand them at the time. That was the fun part. Uh, it was just there for one issue. And he kind of gave us the confidence to go ahead and buy that first year seed and go ahead and plant a cover crop. And since we've done that, it's really kind of moved in the direction. There's just so many different things that cover crops and these regenerative practices really do make us more profitable as farmers. Can you kind of talk about some of the stats of your operation in terms of when you started pH, soil organic matter, what it was then and compared to what it is now, what sort of changes you've been able to affect on your property? Whenever we first started farming, we just used a traditional soil sample. You either use water lab, a private lab, or the state recommendation. And organic matter, it really just depended on the farm. Some of them were maybe 1% if it was a sandier type soil. If we were lucky, a heavier type soil, maybe 2%. And the big thing that the university told us as farmers we'd be lucky to see a 1% increase in our lifetime. It just didn't happen. And I think if you're in a conventional system or just standard no-till, I think you're not gonna see a great increase. But introducing cover crops and stuff like that, we've seen pHs become more balanced without having to apply lime. 
And a lot of it has to do with we've cut back on our nutrients that we're having to apply to crops. And then the other part of it is biology seeks balance in the soil. So we're seeing a lot more balance on our pHs. We've went from like a 5.5 five to we're around 6.2, 6.5. That's it's good enough for me. And as long as I'm not having to apply a lot of lime, it really is cost productive. And then we start looking at organic matter. Cover crops helped. There's some years that we saw up to a 1% gain. Wow. That's not typical. Uh-huh. I'd say typical for us. You could definitely see quarter, maybe a half percent increase. But we've got farms now where we've introduced livestock. We've had multi-species cover crops and no-till. And I think our best farm the last time we tested it was right around 6.1, 6.2. Wow. So, you know, to, to take that farm from about a 2.2, two, 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 to above 6. That's, that's impressive. That's pretty huge for carbon, how much carbon we put in the ground. But just water holding capacity. A lot of farmers don't think about how much more water we can hold in that profile, just increasing organic matter. Yeah. yeah. Do you have kind of sandy soils down there or what? We got it all. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we run, most of our soils are that tight red or orange clay, high iron content, but there are a few farms. It'll be more silt and sand. You got to play each farm pretty much down to the wire, how you're going to manage it on a base by base. You said earlier you started with 30 acres. Yeah, started with 30 acres. 2012 was our first year. I'd say at the peak, we've been up close to about 1,100. It just, it bounces back and forth. We lose a few farms to development or solar farms and maybe another farmer will retire and we pick up some more acres and it's been fun. Okay. You've managed to cut your inputs quite a bit to the tune of quite a lot of money every year, right? Yeah. Whenever we first started farming, we farmed just like everybody else. Traditional soil sample, put a pound or a pound and a quarter of nitrogen per bushel of corn we wanted to grow. Then we got introduced, uh, this crazy guy named Ray Archuleta told me about this guy named Rick Haney and this radical new soil sample that he had. And really, we didn't even understand all the benefits of it at the time. But Rick's test has a lot of key biological indicators that we as farmers need to pay attention to. And there's just the way that Rick does the test. He uses water and a root exudate. He uses an extract called H3A, which is what my ground sees, versus traditional sample uses something like hydrochloric acid. If it rained that on my farm, we'd all be dead right now. Right. Um, The thing of it is we started using Rick's test and as a farmer year one, just starting this system, just the additional nitrogen pool that Rick looks at can save a farmer anywhere from about 20 to $50 an acre, just right off the bat. Mm -hmm. We started using that test and it really made us look at our nutrient management and we've cut our fertility easily by 70 to 80% versus what standard university or, or private lab tests would call for. As a farmer, if you can save $50, $70 an acre, that's enough to take somebody on vacation for a while. Sure. We've got to really start looking at these inputs as farmers, as how much we're spending. Can you just explain a little bit more how a farmer would see that big of a savings in that first year? Year one, traditionally, if a farmer wanted to know how much nitrogen that he had in the soil, he would send off a pre-soil nitrate sample. And it's only looking at one form of nitrogen. The Rick's test is looking at over 23 different forms of nitrogen, amino acids, organic compounds. And really, to look at the whole picture, Rick's test just gives you a bigger picture of what we actually have there. Just by him looking at these other forms, a traditional test only looks at two different ways to find the nitrogen pool. Rick's test has over nine. Rick, looking at all the other available pools of nitrogen and giving us a credit for it, just say that nitrogen's 50 cents a pound right now as far as you know ap- applied as a farmer on average our farm we're picking up at least another 45 50 pounds that's 25 bucks an acre right there off the bat just looking at the total nitrogen pool instead of just 
one form like you get in a traditional test. Right. And then Haney also looks at other nutrients as well. He does. He looks at phosphorus, potassium. We start looking at some of the base saturations. They look a little different than what you get on a conventional test, but they're not hard to understand. They send a guide with you to really learn how to do it. And Rick's actually spent a lot of his time on the phone. I don't think he really gets as much credit as he should, but I do know there's a ton of producers, including myself, that have called down to the lab and, hey, I need you to explain this to me. And they've done a really good job explaining how we're taking into account, take phosphorus. They're looking at inorganic and the organic form of phosphorus, and we're also looking at all those pools and the availability as well, and not just one or the other. I saw you speak not too long ago, and if I remember the figure correctly, on a thousand acres, you're saving about $100,000 on your inputs. We are. That's actually two inputs that we're saving on the farm. It looks at one, we need cover crops where I'm at for weed suppression. And we really have an issue with uh, weed control. Chemicals just aren't working as good as they used to. And so the cover crop suppressing weeds, we don't really post-spray our crops anymore. The chemical savings was about $22,000 last year. Oh, wow. That's a big hit. And then also looking at the Haney test, just looking at nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium was about $78,000 using Rick's test. The way that we know those numbers is we still pull a university sample, and we know what the university recommended versus what Rick did. We apply Rick's recommendation over 90-some percent of our acres, but we still do a check strip where we're applying more fertilizer in certain check strips to just see, is there a yield difference? Are we seeing a benefit? And for the last four or five years, we've always been money ahead, saving that input and going off of Rick's recommendation. Yeah. And so maybe the yield isn't as high, but the inputs are a lot lower. Um, Sometimes the yield is just as high. Sometimes you take a yield hit. I know there's guys point in case one of the producers I know an NRCS employee you know like Adam there in Tennessee Adam Daughtery it's kind of a dance they're still learning how to implement that maybe if they go and kind of split the middle between what Rick recommends and say what the university does that's where their best return on investment is it's not always cut and dry with the producer you have to do those trials and those check strips on your own farm and really see where your ground's at In terms of cover crops, do you have sort of you've zeroed in on what works for you or are you still experimenting? We have our base cover crop mix. Lee's actually the one that came up with it a long time ago. We started with the Holcomb blend. It was cereal rye, triticale, oats, crimson clover, and winter peas. And it gave us diversity with different small grains that are achieving different things. And then we wanted to put a legume in there that were fixating nitrogen. We're able to cut back on that nitrogen bill at the, at the start of the season. And then we kind of built on it from there. We started trying different forms of vetch, different brassicas, looking at broad leaves. If somebody came out with a new cover crop seed next year, we'd probably throw it in the mix on a few acres just to see what would happen. So kind of got our base mix of what we like that we know is going to work. And then we just kind of play around with that from year to year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what are you doing to kill the cover crops? Are you doing it before planting, after planting? So when we first started farming, we typically had to burn down the cover crop ahead of planting. And we just started learning about there's a lot of good benefits allowing that cover crop to go as long in the season as we can. So now our operation has switched over. We're planting into everything green and standing. We'll terminate after we get done planting. And that's really given us the maximum benefit, building biomass, nitrogen. And we still use a chemical. We're still burning down with germoxone. We're running a Yetterstock Devastator on the corn planter. And we're able to roll and plant in one pass now, which saved us a little bit of money and also time. Instead of rolling ahead of the planter, we can now do it in one pass. 
That's right. You took those stock devastators and used them as a roller. <laughs> yeah, they thought we were crazy in the beginning, but I tell you, this will be our fourth year using them. They've actually worked out pretty nice. We've been real happy with it. Yeah. Have you seen other people take that up? We have. <laughs> Some farmers are actually more intuitive than we are. They've had to flip them around backwards and ours was easy. We just bolted them right to the planter and it out. But some of the guys with different folding planters and stuff, they've kind of had to engineer them a little bit uh, to make them work like they wanted to. But yeah, we're starting to see it pick up where farmers Farmers just don't have a lot of free time anymore. No, right? And if you can cut a pass out and put something yeah. on your planter, that's worked out pretty well. Absolutely, right. And so you're rolling your covers when you're planting, yep. and then you come back and do a burn down later. We do. How long? Typically within a week. I typically like to see our burn down within that two to four day time period. Okay. Just make sure that since we are using Remoxone, we don't want that corn crop to be spiking out of the okay. ground yet. And that way we can get it sprayed and, and we don't have any chemical issues. Wow. Cool. So I want to pivot to direct marketing. Yeah, we deal a lot with the general public. Mm -hmm. It's always interesting. Seems like you're really nimble about marketing your crops. How did you decide to start direct marketing your crop? What was the impetus for that? And how did you really break through with that mindset? I guess I would say the way that we got into direct marketing was also just another good mentor that I've had along the journey in farming. Ray Archuleta told me about this crazy guy named Gabe Brown in North Dakota and how I needed to talk to him. And when I called Gabe Brown the first time, it was actually to talk to him about cows because Ray had told me about mob grazing animals and packing them tight like buffalo, like Gabe Brown does. And the first time I called Gabe, it was really about cows. And before the end of the phone conversation, one of the key things I took away from mine and Gabe's conversation is Gabe didn't know me from anybody and spent hours on the phone with me and the thing that I liked about it the most is he really told me as a farmer, if you're going to work this hard, try to make the most money you can at it. Grow a good product, be a good farmer, but make money at it. And he told me about diversity, you know, not only in my farming systems, but as an operation to look at vertical integration that the average farmer in the United States, I think at that time, only got 11 cents out of every ag dollar. Wow. And Gabe said he was a capitalist and we needed to be making more money as farmers. And so he kind of just it was almost like a pep rally on the phone with Gabe that he was telling me about these things that I needed to look at. And it really made sense. If you are going to work so many hours and put so much time and effort into farming, you know, we really should be looking at maximizing our time and effort. And so we just kind of ran with it from there. We started looking at what are the crops that we were passionate about, what we wanted to grow, what we wanted to deal with. One of the things that really came to mind is I like to drink beer. So we started looking at breweries or malt houses. Then a buddy of mine decided that when he was going through a school to get his master's in business, he wanted to open a distillery. And then so the distillery thing came up and we started looking at the grains that we were growing. Could they be made into a distilled alcohol? So when we met with them and our grain, we found out that our grain, a regeneratively grown grain, these old heirloom varieties or non-GMOs, they're actually making more alcohol per run for the same volume of corn. And if you're, it takes the same time to grind it and distill it and all these things, why wouldn't you wanna have a better product? And so that's how we got into the distillery side. We started going to breweries and talking to them. That's how we started growing small grain for different breweries and malt houses. But I think a lot of times farmers are scared to either share their story. Typically I found out a lot of farmers are private and they don't wanna share their story. We've got to be comfortable talking to people that are not ag. And the other part is, what is your story? Find out what you're passionate about. Too many times, if you're not passionate about growing all grains and you like livestock, you should probably have some animals on the farm <laughs> and invite people to your farm that could be potential customers and start looking at maximizing direct marketing. If the average farmer, I think, in the Midwest is making about $20 a head 
per hog in confinement. We're averaging about $580 a head for a hog. Wow. They can have a whole house full of hogs, but if I sell 20 of them, I've made the same amount of money and I've actually worked less. So it just comes down to using things like Facebook, Twitter, social media, Instagram. There's cheap ways for us as farmers to get our story out there and do a lot of this marketing. And so the hogs, for instance, you're basically raising the same way somebody else would who's only making $20 or are you no, doing, you're it's, doing it's, different it, things? It's different things. So yeah. we're talking about hogs in confinement on a house. They're doing large number of hogs in a house. We're growing them on pasture, but it costs me. I've never really seen the numbers, but I believe it doesn't cost me any more to raise my animals than what it does theirs. Okay. Yep. Just going back for a minute, you said the heirloom varieties that you're growing produce more alcohol per per run. Why is that? A lot of it just comes down to test weight, nutrient density. Most of our grain that we're growing now, we're seeing test weights of 62 and 64 pound test weight corn. And ultimately, the name of the game in distilling is you take starch in a corn kernel and you mash it and you turn it into a sugar that you can then distill the alcohol by that sugar. And we're just seeing a better quality grain with a higher test weight that's converting over and actually making more alcohol. It's worked out pretty well. Do you feel like your farming practices play a part in that nutrient density and the starches and all of that? Or is it more the variety? I think it has to do with the farming practices more so than the variety. Okay. I think that having higher carbon levels in the soil, when we're having animal integration, farmers that just put on synthetic fertilizer, it's typically NPK, maybe a little sulfur. You put an animal out there, you're getting tons of micro and macronutrients in the manure, which is then available to the next crop. So I think there's just a larger amount of free nutrients in our crop fields because of the way that we're using cover crops and animals that then gets pulled into the next cash crop and that really helps with our grain quality. I see. All of this requires a lot of planning and figuring out what your rotations are going to be and what your varieties are going to be and all of that. I guess it goes back to what Gabe told me and he said if you want to change your operation change the way that you see things. I guess it could be overwhelming if you looked at it that way, it does take time and management. We treat our cash crops and our cover crops the same. If anything, I think your cover crops are more important than your cash crops because your cover crop is gonna set you up for success or failure in the following cash crop. It does take a little bit of time and management. We have to think about residual chemicals. What chemicals are we gonna use? What cover crops are we gonna plant? Even if it's to the point where we know we're going to plant a cover crop on a farm that we're going to graze, are there grazing restrictions on the chemicals that we're using? So it does take a little bit of management to think about that. But if you want to make money, you've got to find a better way to farm. And really, these regenerative practices are giving the competitive edge to a lot of farmers. We'll get back to Russell Hedrick in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Russell as he talks about different ways of marketing small grains and using the heirloom corn variety called Bloody Butcher to make bourbon and grits. Again, I saw you speak recently and you were talking about small grains and you have an average cost of $325 an acre, which is 
pretty much includes everything from seed to the packaging of the finished product, right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. And your income for those small grains is quite a bit higher. Willing to share some of those figures? Yeah, it really just depends on how we're marketing it and what small grain it is. I think barley on the, the commodity market right now is like two fifty, maybe three dollars a bushel. Nobody wants to grow that because even if you make a hundred bushels of barley, you're still below your cost of production. Right. You have to start looking at different markets. Right. One of those markets just happens to be malt grade varieties, and so there's two malt houses in my state that are within, say, an hour to an hour and a half. It's not far to haul grain, and so the typical contract for malt grade barley is nine dollars a bushel. So if you can grow 100 bushel barley then mm -hmm. at nine bucks, you're making almost $600 an acre. And that's just in the first half of the cropping year. So that's one of the things that we follow. We look at malt grade and malt grade barley, we've been getting anywhere from like nine to $14 a bushel. And if you can average anywhere from about 80 to 100 bushels an acre, that's not too bad. Then there's white wheat varieties. It really just depends on the process we're going to put it through. But we've got companies that grind it up into like artisan flowers. They're paying $18 a bushel. If it's going to one of the breweries that we supply, I think we're somewhere between like 14 to $16 a bushel, just depending on the quality. But still it. 50, 60 bushels an acre, that's not too bad money. Yeah. We do grow some seed stock. We grow some forages, some forage seeds for different dairies or cattlemen, like triticale. Triticale, we can get $14, $15 a bushel out of it. And then you start looking at other small grains, like rye. If we grow rye, we can typically get a pretty good market for it as well. So, I mean, there's just, you don't have to grow wheat. I know the last two years in the United States, we've had a shortage on rye and, and quite a bit of triticale. And it's a pretty good market out there for farmers. A little bit of risk. I'm not going to lie. There is a little risk. We definitely have to make the grade and the quality. So you've got to kind of pay attention there. But to me, that calculated risk is worth the reward. Mm -hmm. Have you had any failures in terms of not meeting the quality? Twice. Twice. Uh -huh. In six years, we've had it happen twice. Once was a white wheat variety, our vomitoxin level. It was going for food grade, so it had to pretty much be nothing. And we were with like two tenths of a point higher. Oh, no. And we tested that stuff all the time. And it just, it finally ended up going to animal feed, went to feed wheat. It's one of those things that it's never been an entire crop that was that way. It's typically like if you have a failure, it might be one field and it may just be an issue for that field. And mm -hmm. we had the problem. And another time, I think we grew some seed triticale and it didn't quite meet germination for the state minimum. And so our cover crop that year ended up having a lot of triticale in it. It was still good, just didn't make the standard for us to be able to sell to a customer. So, I mean, it's just one of those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So cycling back to the alcohol thing, yep. I loved your quote the other day, liquid corn sells better than hard corn. <laughs> <laughs> Did you so, start eat your own distillery? No, we actually partnered with Foothills Distillery. Tim and Zach started Foothills. We partnered on with them as well. And Foothills Distillery, we make the first bourbon in North Carolina since Prohibition. Started out with moonshine. Tim liked to make moonshine back in the day. And uh, we decided we would start out with moonshine and then Zach came up with the idea of, hey, you know, let's make some bourbon. It wasn't a bad idea either. It's been a good product. Then we started making bourbon. The bourbon has been a big success. There's been some awards that's been won with it. Nice. It's been like it's one of those things that you see something new that's really cool and then it does other things. Like we've got honey producers that are now barrel aging honey and it's awesome. It is amazing to have a bourbon flavor in honey. So, you know, you start seeing other sectors of agriculture even, even start spinning off of that. But you've got the bourbon there. We started supplying other distilleries, one of them being Old Nick Williams. They're about an hour and 20 minutes from my house, but we supply them with all their grain and 
they're producing moonshine and they're making a bourbon as well. It's a different kind of bourbon than what we make. I like both of them. They're making rum now. They're making a new cinnamon flavored whiskey. So I mean, whether the economy's up or down, uh, typically people are drinking for happier sadness. <laughs> the distillery thing has been really fun and it's really grown over the last couple years and hopefully it continues to really move forward. We've got a new bourbon we're coming out with made out of bloody butcher corn, mm -hmm. that old heirloom variety. Okay. It's good. Okay. It really is. If I understand correctly, it's quite profitable so, growing corn for bourbon. Yeah, so liquid corn's worth over $500 a bushel. It's definitely, we try to make all the liquid corn that we can. That's kind of the joke. Talk about, is it any different than growing hard corn? No. It's not, no, you, you mean, just have I mean, to have an outlet. Yeah, I mean, growing corn for the distillery is really no different than just growing corn for the elevator. We decided to grow different varieties because we wanted a different flavor but there's plenty of distilleries across this country that just buy yellow number two from plenty of farmers. Dried 15.5% yellow so number same two. Same thing that would be delivered to the elevator. Yep, same thing. I remember my second, third year of farming, there were a couple of seed companies that were actually paying attention to that demand and they had HFC highly fermentable corn. So when you looked at a seed catalog, sometimes you could see that this corn maybe did a little higher and was a little better for alcohol production or ethanol. I think it went both ways. Yeah, so that Bloody Butcher, that was sort of an interesting one. It's a red, like this deep red corn. Yep. Yeah. It's a deep red crimson corn. I think it's roughly from like 1845 around. I mean, it's been around a while, but it's a fun corn to grow. Uh-huh. I actually had a friend, a guy named Ken Morris out of the eastern part of the state. He actually got me my first seed and we started growing it just pretty much in a garden and saved up enough seed to plant an acre and then a couple more acres. Me and a buddy of mine, we actually started growing it on opposite ends of the state just in case we had a crop failure. We didn't lose it. And Zeb's grown some of it, I have too. And it makes great grits and cornmeal. Uh, we started grinding it up into grits and cornmeal and we started uh, selling it through a company we called Heritage Ground. And then we're also making the bourbon out of it. It's just fun to grow these old heirloom varieties. They'll get. 15 feet tall. It'll set ears six, seven feet tall. It's just a fun corn to grow. And we've even looked at the versatility of that corn variety. It may even be a good corn variety for some of these uh, dairy farmers to grow for silage. It's got a really good ear set. It's a big, tall plant. I believe it would make good tonnage and the seed's pretty cheap. Okay. Just one of the things we look at is not only is it a variety that we like to grow and it's profitable, but we can even keep our own seed stock on it and plant it the next year. Yeah. What makes it great for bourbon and grits and cornmeal? So it'll have typically a pretty high test weight and then also just the flavor of it. It's kind of hard to describe if you've never had it. The grits and the cornmeal, the quality that comes from that heirloom variety. I've had a lot of people say they wouldn't ever eat regular grits again. We have quite a few people that we ship grits and cornmeal to a pretty long distance and it's good flavor. Yeah. Are there other companies out there using Bloody Butcher for grits and cornmeal? What made you think there was a market for it? Me and Zeb were just talking about it one day when we were growing it. And I don't even know how grits came up. And I'm pretty sure Zeb's like, we should grind some of this. <laughs> and so I Googled about a grist mill and found somebody with a grist mill. And I was like, I have this corn. I want you to grind these grits. And honestly, it just kind of went from there. That's the thing about it is, is it really hasn't been hard to come up with new markets or ideas. It's just been one of those things that hey, let's try this. And we do it on a scale where 
if it fails, we just eat a lot of grits. <laughs> and it didn't fail, so we sold a lot of grits. The thing of it is, just have fun, find something you're passionate about. I'm passionate about good alcohol and good food. And so most of our marketing has really worked out pretty well. Yeah. You are direct selling this, the cornmeal and the grits to the end customer. Yeah, yeah businesses, okay. customers. We set up a website called Heritage Ground where they can email us. They can kind of see our story. And honestly, I hope farmers understand that if you can get comfortable just sharing your story and if you can typically meet somebody from a non-ag sector of the public, if you can make them laugh and get them in tune with what you're doing on your farm and that you actually care, they'll buy your product. Yeah, right. They want to support you. Sure. Typically, we crack a few jokes, let them try some bourbon, tell them how we're farming and how we're sequestering carbon which is better for the climate and we're cutting back on our nutrients so we're not seeing nutrient loads in the lakes and water stream systems just generally tell them that you care and you can talk to them about that you'll typically see them kind of pick up on it is there any part of that story that seems to resonate more with people than others i think here lately talking about reducing chemicals i think that's been a really hot topic here lately it's a big buzzword but you know talking about how we've cut our farm back to just one chemical and then also talking about how we are worried about water quality as farmers and there's farmers that are doing best management practices as far as how we're applying nutrients and the timing. And the big thing here lately has been talking about carbon sequestering. Hey, we're planting cover crops and no-tilling and we're actually pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and pumping it in the ground. And not only is it better for us, but it's better for you as well as the general public. The carbon thing's been a, a pretty big buzzword. Yeah, that's actually a really good transition because I wanted to ask you about the carbon credits and everything. You recently were in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum, which is sort of a big deal. You were there uh, speaking, doing a presentation along with Indigo Ag. And uh, why don't you just tell us about that a little bit? We've been working with Indigo on this Terraton initiative and they came out to our farm and they wanted to look at really the data that we've collected as far as how much carbon we put in the ground over the last couple of years. And that's one of the benefits of using Rick's test is from the time we started using it until now, we can tell you on our farm, you know, how much carbon are we actually pulling out of the atmosphere and putting in the ground. And I guess they, uh, yeah, I think it was well over a hundred different farms in the United States and looked at how much carbon our farmers putting in the ground, what would be typical, what could we expect. I started putting that data together and they started doing some meetings and really I think they're just trying to bring the whole story together of Indigo's doing the Terraton initiative. They're trying to create a new marketplace for farmers to get paid for carbon sequestering. But also I think they're trying to bring some farmers to a meeting and trying to get the industry involved as well. Not only should farmers be farming better practices, but they're trying to show some of these industry leaders that, hey, we're gonna have this marketplace. Really, we went to Davos, Switzerland. It was actually a pretty cool meeting over there. It was my first trip to Switzerland and I'm really grateful they took me. But during the meeting that we had, my part of it was really just talking about how do we farm? What practices are we doing? How is it beneficial? How is my farming style sequestering carbon? And then how much carbon are we seeing? I think on average three to four tons a year. That's a pretty big deal. Wow. And that's per acre. Yeah. The marketplace, I think they said the marketplace they're hoping to set somewhere like 15 to $20 a ton. So if I can put four tons in the ground, that's, if it's $20 a ton, that's $80 an acre. I think the national farm average income this last year was actually like, what, less than $20 an acre. So if somebody can even get a ton per acre and get signed up, I think you're gonna see they can double their farm income just 
by doing some of these regenerative practices. So I'm really hopeful for it. I hope it turns out good. I hope everything just keeps going smooth and it's a benefit to not only to the environment and the general public, but also to farmers as well as this kind of plays out. Can you give me sort of a general idea of what a farmer is agreeing to when they sign a contract? I mean, essentially the way I've understood Essentially, a farmer is agreeing that they'll keep records. They'll allow Indigo on the farm to test the ground and they keep records. And should Indigo ever be audited, it is the farmer's responsibility to keep those records oh, I see. and make them available to Indigo. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Like they've not told them that they have to do this practice or that practice. And that's one of the things I've liked about it. If you still want to strip till, strip till, plant a cover crop. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to put cows on it, don't put cows on it. You still want to spray a fungicide, go spray a fungicide. They're just there to measure carbon. Okay. And that's all they're there for. Oh, yeah. So okay. that's one of the things I've like. They're not hemming farmers up in a box yeah. that you have to do X, Y, and Z. But they're putting a set of guidelines together that says Russell has done this and seen this. And Jason Carter did this and saw this and Gabe Brown. And essentially they'll say, we've seen farmers put these intensive practices and we've seen this amount of carbon sequestered. So if you did this, we would expect this. So if you wanna get a higher payment, if you wanna put more carbon in the ground, these are some of the better practices. I do know they are gonna allow grazing land in. Even if it's not in row crop production, they'll let grazers in. Was there a question? That they yeah, at one point in time, I had a farmer ask me, you know, well, I can't sign up for hair ton because I don't row crop, I, I graze on. He only had cattle. They don't care if it's row crop ground, cattle ground, or vegetable production. Okay. As long as it's farm ground and you're at least doing some form of regenerative farm practices and putting carbon in the ground, they're going to let people sign up. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've kind of got to to be able to go carbon positive. I mean, no-till is still a carbon deficit. You'll burn carbon in no-till. How is that measured exactly? It's a basic numbers game. 150 bushel corn will essentially produce 9,000 pounds of carbon. When you harvest the grain, you take a third of that carbon. So now you're left with 6,000. Half of that is gonna evaporate back into CO2. So now you're left with 3,000. By the time you feed the microbial pool and the rest of that corn residue breaks down, you're gonna be lucky to see 1,500 pounds of carbon back into the soil profile. It takes every year in North Carolina, and this is based on our climate, you gotta have at least a input of 2,500 pounds to break even because our climate is so mild we're turning organic matter and carbon 365 days a year. So if you're not at least at 2,500 pounds, you're actually going in a deficit and removing it from the ground. That's pretty much how the numbers work out. Have you installed like soil sensors on your land or something for them to do these measurements? The way that I've understood the Terraton initiative so far is as of right now, they're strictly doing it based on soil samples. But if we sign up 50 million acres, there's no way to test that many acres. <laughs> They've got some really smart guys. I've met Ed and Dan and, and Caitlin, and they're putting a system together that one looks at sampling, the next part is satellite, and then also modeling. Okay. So it's pretty much going to be a three-pronged system that they can model, they can look at satellite imagery, and then verify I don't know how much percentage they're going to have to verify, but they'll still verify with tests. Interesting. They're looking at a three-pronged approach to be able to look at how much carbon we're actually putting in the ground. When it comes to the satellite imagery and modeling, they've got some really good people working for them. I've been impressed with the people I've met from Indigo. You said in Davos there were companies there 
listening to your presentation who were in the market for buying carbon. Yes, there's definitely companies that I know that have been at these meetings and been there that they've already made the commitment they're going to buy carbon credits. I can't tell you who from. I do know that there are a large number of companies that have expressed interest in buying carbon credits. There are some that are already buying carbon credits. Like I said, low impact companies, Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, I think they're paying like 20 to 40 a ton. You get into a high impact company like Exxon, BP, they're like 80 to 100 a ton because they got to have it. It's do or die. Right. So they're paying, let's just say between 20 and 100 per ton. And then Indigo is going to be paying farmers at this point, 15 to 20, right? Yeah, 15 to 20 is, I think, where they're trying to set the market at right now. And with hopes that it'll continue to actually grow in the future. Okay. Well, what questions would you suggest farmers ask if they're thinking about signing up with Indigo or Ori? What do they need to be prepared to do? I think the biggest thing that uh, farmers need to do if they're looking at going into the carbon market What does the company expect? Are you keeping records? Are they keeping records? How much time do you have to produce them if they need them? Are they gonna go through a review process? I mean, there's just general questions of how are they gonna verify what we're doing on the farm? How much am I gonna get paid per ton? And ultimately make sure that you fully understand what's gonna be expected of you in your farming practices, in your record keeping. I mean, just make sure that you fully understand what you're doing before you sign up. Just make sure that you're working with a good, reputable company. Thanks to Russell Hedrick for sharing that fascinating conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.